the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Town Hall Review Podcast, where we bring you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Our podcast is brought to you through partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece that I trust you'll enjoy. We are closing this week by looking back at an election two weeks ago. And what it means for Great Britain with, of course, the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arne, who has been on the show talking about this election in Great Britain many times throughout the course of 2019. I thought it appropriate since it is such a significant thing to end there today. Before I play a couple of portions of the Queen's speech from this uh, week, a week ago, uh, Wednesday, Dr. Arne, what are your general thoughts about what happened in Great Britain two weeks back? Oh, it's a huge drama that touches on the fundamental things that are wrong with government in many parts of the world now. Because if you just think of the history real quick, uh, Nigel Farage founds the UK Independence Party, and it starts eating into the conservative base. And David Cameron, the conservative prime minister, who's very much a remainer in the European Union, finally decides he can put it to bed by scheduling a vote, a referendum of the people, which happened in Britain. They're not common, but they're not unusual. You wouldn't say that they're rare either. Um, he he uh, then proceeded to campaign and use the resources of every establishment thing. Didn't they call the it campaign fear, operation yeah, fear? That's right. And they and, you know, they just didn't believe, you know, and they thought, I'll make them shut up. The people will vote against it. Alas, the people did not cooperate. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, fifty-two forty-eight uh, leave passed, and that's more people voted for that than anything in British history. And so, there you go, right? So David Cameron did the honorable thing and resigned, and the Parliament, the Tories, then elected his replacement. You know, the, par- the members of parliament from the conservative parties who picked the leader and therefore the prime minister. And they picked Theresa May, who was a remainer. And she dithered and she was. So she had campaigned with Cameron against leaving against, the European yeah. Union. And, and she, you know, violated the fundamental principles of negotiation. For example, don't announce that you're desperate to have a deal and life can't go on unless you get one. Yep. <laughs> they'll, they'll read that. Yep. And uh, and. But then these amazing things happened, right? The, uh, there were rulings by the high court in Britain that the prime minister could not prorogue parliament. That is to say, put it off for a while, right? Which has been a direct political tool of the prime minister, you know, for political advantage for four or five hundred years. Yeah, it's not an innovation. And, 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 you know, finally, this crazy man who's, you know, brilliant. Boris Johnson took control of the parliament and he pushed and they thwarted him. And, you know, the prime minister has always had the power, one of his weapons, to call an election. 
And that's a big weapon. But remember, all it does is it says you're going to go ask the people what they want. And so Cameron had sponsored a bill, which Boris Johnson, uh, a backbenchman or a parliament at the time, had resisted called the, uh, what is it called? The Duration of Parliament Act or something like that. Yes. Uh, fixed, fixed term. Fixed right. terms. Yep. yep. Yeah. And that means you couldn't call an election without a two-thirds vote of the House. And so it took forever to get an election. And then they had it. And darned if he didn't just sweep. And he so, crushed them. Now, there is a yeah. uh, there's a footnote to this for all of our viewers who are enjoying some post-Christmas leisure. The kids are gone. The packages are wrapped and put away. They may want to go to HBO and watch the movie Brexit, the Uncivil War, which came out in 2019 and starred Benedict Cumberbatch. And it is a brilliant work, and it brilliantly portrays Boris Johnson and Michael Cove as just as you describe, and this Dominic Cummings, their lead advisor, sort of the Karl Rove to Boris Johnson or the David Axelrod to Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, as just this brilliant, if um, eccentric, political genius. And he senses that, as you said, all throughout 2016, fundamental things are afoot in Great Britain. And he urged Boris when he got the PM to push it, push it, push it. And darned if he didn't go and get a new deal negotiated with the European Union because he didn't adopt the desperation tactics of Theresa May. who's a fine lady, and she's still, by the way, doing fine back bench work. Now, I don't, I got to ask you whether or not prime ministers hang around as she has decided to hang around on the back benches, but she's doing fine work now. But Boris Johnson just dazzled everyone. And then against their better judgment, at least the judgment of the Labour backbenches, don't call an election. The Scottish National Party and the Liberal Democrats decided they had that the moment was ripe to strike. I mean, who was advising them, Larry Ard? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the polls were good for Boris before the election, and they had been good, even a bit better for Theresa May. She called a snap election, got her two thirds to do it, but by the time. Uh, the election actually happened a few weeks later. It produced a more or less hung parliament. She, there was a minority conservative government with a coalition. And so this time, you know, they everybody, you know, first of all, it's becoming ridiculous, right? It's sort of a national understanding, consensus left and right, that this is absurd. They can't do anything. Let's have an election. So finally, they did agree to call the election. And Boris is, you know, there was all the typical things, right? Polling, by the way, is in a sorry state these days. Oh, my goodness, uh, it is. It's terrible. And, and so, of course, all the predictions were it's going to be very narrow. Well, he wanted to get 68-seat majority. That's a bunch. 70. And, uh, isn't, isn't it? I, I can't. I think he got the 70, finally. Maybe even 80. Yeah, I have to go 70? look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's close. To, it's tied or it slightly exceeds or it's close to tied. With the election, Margaret Thatcher's best, best election, 1985, and then the other precedent, and there's only one other, is 1935 when Stanley Baldwin won a huge majority that lasted 10 years till the end of the Second World War and that, of course, resulted in the disastrous policies of appeasement. He and, has uh, 365 members of parliament. So yeah. subtract 365 from 650. I don't do the math very well. I'll have to get my calculator out. But but you you probably have that already. You're a Hillsdale guy, so you probably yeah. already have that calculated. 
Well, I, I do have a calculation. I know that's not the calculation. The, the calculation is how many did he have before and how many does he have now? Ah. And, and, uh, and uh, he had a minority before, right? He, so he, has, an 80, he has an 80-seat margin. 80 seats. Yeah. That's Isn't right. that remarkable? He had a, a five- or six-seat deficit before the election. Yes. So he picked up a bunch. And, uh, and it, the nature of the vote was remarkable, as I've said it before on the show. Uh, a bunch of people voted for Boris Johnson that had not voted for a Tory for, you know, some of them since 1950. Uh, and then, you know, the first seat to report, by the way, was Bly Valley up in the northwest of England, coal, former coal mining district. And that had been labor since 1950. And the first seat announced was Tory. And that's shockwaves went everywhere just from that one, right? Well, that seat is terribly like the districts in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and and Michigan and those other states that Trump carried Former coal mining places, lots of working people. You know, we don't really have a working class in America, but but they do in Britain. And uh, and so there was a shift in uh, similar in many ways to the shift that's been happening over here. Now, do you think in this um, among the many lessons of this le- of this last election, Scottish nationalism is on the rise again? They just had. A referendum, and by just I mean in political terms, in the history of Great Britain, it's like a blink of an eye. It's four years ago, where the Scots rejected by a decisive margin, by ten percent, the idea of of separating from the United Kingdom. Now she's back, the leader of the Scottish National Party, demanding another referendum. I would never give it to her. I absolutely wouldn't give it to her. You don't get to to revote these things like that. What do you think? Well, she's uh, so. Um, she, everybody agreed four years ago. She. I can't remember the name of the lady who's the head of the Scottish National Nationalist Party. They all agreed this is a once-in-a-generation vote. Yes. <laughs> Cause, cause, you Nicola know, Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon yeah. is her name. Yep. There you go. And, uh, and you know, now it's, you know, once except, you know, until five years from now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, you know, and they did win basically, you know, well, they didn't quite win all the seats. Dr. Oren, the, the occasional thump in British politics comes along, and the thump that we heard was the thumping of Jeremy Corbyn down the steps of British electoral history, and they are booting him out. I mean, he rolled all the way to the bottom, and they're having a labor election. What does it tell us that he was repudiated so thoroughly? Well, he moved left. I mean, well, one thing it tells us is, you know, just a kind of personal thing, right? He wasn't a particularly effective politician as leader. What he had done before that was build a group, I think they were called Momentum. Right. And, they, their, and their idea was to, you know, Bernie Sanders, right? Let's go for it. We're socialists here, aren't we? And so uh, so that, that uh, he pushed the Labor Party in that direction. Like and, the Democratic Party is being pushed, as we saw a week ago Thursday night, you know, we've got Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Bernie Sanders making Joe Biden look other than a complete liberal. I mean, they're making him look like a moderate. Oh, I have to stick this in. I th- on the debate stage last night, I think there were, or at the last Democratic debate, I think there were three members of the United States Senate. Yes. Running for president, right? Yes. And that means that if Donald Trump were 
impeached and convicted, that would be a political advantage to them. Yes. Must they not recuse themselves? Well, the you know, I, I raised that. <laughs> I played for Leader McConnell a week before last, a montage of the six senators who are or have been seeking the presidency includes the five currently in the race. The three were only on the stage a week ago, Thursday night. But Kamala Harris has dropped out. So there were six. And I had I had audio of all six of them saying all six of them saying uh, the president must be removed. And he's and the leader laughed out loud and he said, and I'm I'm biased and I'm recused. What about those six? And of course, it's just absurd. Everyone's made up their mind on the impeachment. Yeah, well, and remember, what, what Trump is accused of in the Ukraine is using a constitutional power to favor himself in politics. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Isn't it the same? It's Very just similar. Uh, anyway. it's, it's head shaking. It's head shaking. So yeah. back back to Great Britain, I, I do believe that the Labor Party may be broken beyond repair. I, and I always say that with some hesitation because Tony Blair won the biggest landslide ever only a decade or so ago. And so it's it's not that long since Tony Blair won 197, 173 seat majority. Boris has got 80 seats. Do you think, though, they broke the Labor Party? No. Well, I, I don't. And the reason is, you know, there are it's like, you know, is the Republican Party or the Democratic Party dead? There are millions of people loyal to that. And they, you know, and the real question we're asking when we ask about the death of a modern party is, can it put together a coalition of its true believers with others to get close to or or have a majority? And that is difficult for them right now. And, you know, they'll come back. I mean, and, you know, the great labor victories, except for 1945, have all been won by uh, in 1945, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War, an unusual situation when the country had suffered so greatly, uh, it, they've all been won, the big victories, by people who moved the Labor Party back toward the center. And, and when we come back from break, we're going to talk a little bit about Harold Wilson, who many Americans have never heard of until the, the series The Crown came out with its third season. And smack there in the middle of... The Crown is Harold Wilson, brilliantly portrayed, by the way. I don't have much of a memory of him. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Did you have he any? Was, you know, um, we got a minute to the break. Did you admire him in any way? Or was uh, he gray? No. <laughs> no, he was. Yeah, you know, he's not my kind of guy, but he was effective and he, he's way better than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, he, uh, he was a moderate socialist, if there is such a thing. And we're talking about a year's past, and the year in British politics was so momentous culminating in the election of an 80-seat majority from the Tories, going from a hung parliament to a parliament that can actually do pretty much whatever Boris Johnson wants it to do. And and that brings us to the Queen's speech. And before I go to the specifics of what Boris Johnson said he wanted to do through the voice of the Queen, I wanted to talk about a little bit about that that um, ritual, Larry Arndt. We, we have seen in The Crown, the movie that everyone is watching on Netflix, the Prince of Wales giving a speech, uh, a, a marvelous episode when he was invested in 1969 uh, as a young Cambridge student. It's just a great episode. But investiture speeches are different from Queen speeches. Can you describe what a Queen speech is and how that that actually evolved? Well, you know, the uh, Britain has never had an absolute, absolute monarchy, but it did have for a long time a very powerful monarchy. And that meant the, the king was the executive branch, and he had significant 
influence over legislation. And, and you know, King Charles I was beheaded and others were deposed for trying to go too far with that. And George and III they, made war upon yeah. the colonies against parliamentary instincts at some point. Yeah, that's right. Some of the best of the Burke and Pitt especially didn't like that. So they they were strong, right? And they, and this, the story of the unfolding of the British Constitution is the limiting of that. And the if Churchill had got his way even more, the imposition or the installation of checks and balances between a two-house legislature uh, and an executive. So anyway, that's the story, right? And that means that in the early days, king would go to parliament and state the king, the king, the monarch, the king or the queen enters through a certain gate. If you if you uh, stand in Parliament Square and face the Palace of Westminster where the parliament is, on the left hand side, your left is Big Ben and that's where the House of Commons is. And on the right hand side, down the length of that long building is where the House of Lords is. And on the far right-hand side, there's a gate, and the queen comes in state through it, and she goes through a door, and she's in a throne room. It's very large. And she sits in there in her gowns and stuff and greets the leaders of parliament. Uh, the, uh, it's a very important ceremony. After she gets there, then bailiffs from the House of Lords walk the length of that building— carrying a staff, and they knock on the door of the House of Commons, and there's a depression in the door now because they always knock in the same place. Huh. And, and then, and then uh, the, jo- the door is slightly ajar, and they don't go in until they're invited in. And that's because Charles I went in there to arrest, uh, you know, Oliver Cromwell and Hampton and... <laughs> and some of those leaders that led to the English Revolution. And they had fled. I see the birds have fled, he said, right? So the, the president now is the no representative of the monarch or of the House of Lords may enter the House of Commons except upon invitation. And so he invites them to come. And then they decide to come. And then they all walk down to the House of Lords, the whole House of Commons. And they gather in the House of Lords, and it's, the House of Commons is not big enough to hold everybody in the House of Commons. There's not a seat for everybody. About two-thirds can seat. That's it. And the House of Lords, there's not nearly enough room. So it's standing room only. Now, in the old days, the king would uh, uh, walk out of the throne room and sit in front of the parliament and read a speech. And the speech was much of it in the way of demands, you know, and sometimes simple demands. Go do this. Now, the speech is written under the authority of the prime minister for the queen. And uh, I've always argued that that, that the fact that they preserve that, the government announces its program for the opening of every new parliament by a speech by the monarch. And that means the very beloved and great and now longest serving monarch in British history, Elizabeth II, they can't put anything before the country that she can't sit there and read. Uh, I will tell you that Martin Gilbert, my teacher in the Churchill biographer, used to laugh at me when I would tell that story. He said, well, they do put some stuff in there that she's bound not to like. <laughs> well, that's, in the, that's in the investiture episode of The Crown. This, um, this speech, delivered on December the 18th, I believe, was Queen Elizabeth II's 68th 
Queen's speech of her reign. 68 times she has had to go and read words written for her. What a pageant of history she has lived. I honestly don't know that we have anything remotely approaching it other than Victoria. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. She just passed Victoria what three or four years ago. Yeah, and and you know Victoria was you know you know the by by the time of Victoria you know who governed for most of the nineteenth century reigned for most of the nineteenth century. By that time, the Parliament was in charge, but she had some significant influence more than the Queen has now. Yes, that is to say, you know you because you know the Queen. Uh, but Churchill was very strict about this. He thought the monarchy was incredibly important, but it must not rule of its own authority in any way. And yet certain forms of action are preserved that amount to constitutional steps, and they affect behavior and outcomes. So, for example, Boris Johnson won this election and he, he, you know, and, and they, they film it every time, right? It's hallowed. He gets in a car at, at uh, wherever he is. This time he happened to be leaving from 10 Downing Street. And everybody photographs him there, and he drives up to Buckingham Palace, and everybody photographs him there, and he walks in, and he, he has a short ceremony with the queen where she asks him to form a government, right? And she, she wouldn't fail to ask uh, the winner. But what about in the case of that hung parliament, right? It would have been interesting. Yep. You know, she might have picked somebody else. It would have been. In... Thing. Now, what's and interesting about this? Called... Uh, what, what's the ceremony called? Go ahead. Uh, the ceremony is called kissing hands. Ah. You get the ki- you get to kiss the queen's hands. And uh, and, you know, you bow and, and she invites you. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a record of uh, of uh, uh King George the Sixth asking Winston Churchill to be prime minister, which you know at various times in his life he'd not been so sure he wanted to do, and uh, and he said, uh, "I suppose you know why I've asked you here." And Churchill writes, adopting his mood, I said, uh, "Can't imagine." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what what I wanted the audience to know about this Queen's speech, I'm going to play a couple of cuts from two weeks ago, is that two months ago she arrived in her royal carriage in her robes with the traditional pomp, this time at the request of number uh, 10 Downing, the uh, Prime Minister Johnson. She arrived in her Bentley and was wearing a less grand than usual um, toned down, no full regalia, no imperial crown, just a nice turquoise suit, because he wanted to say to the new working class members of the of the Tory party were with you. Here are a couple of things that she said. Cut number 28, Queen Elizabeth. My lords and members of the House of Commons, my government's priority is to deliver the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union on the 31st of January. My ministers will bring forward legislation to ensure the United Kingdom's exit on that date and to make the most of the opportunities that this brings for all the people of the United Kingdom. Thereafter, my ministers will seek a future relationship with the European Union based on a free trade agreement that benefits the whole of the United Kingdom. They will also begin trade negotiations with other leading global economies. 
And then she went on to add cut number 29. A modern, fair, points-based immigration system will welcome skilled workers from across the world to contribute to the United Kingdom's economy, communities, and public services. So here is this magnificent monarch who served forever, Dr. Arn, saying two very controversial things. One, we're leaving the United, uh, we're leaving the European Union, and number two, we're going to overhaul our immigration system. And she does it in that tone of reserved regality, which is, you know, it's much to be admired, though it's not our way. It's much to be admired. She has the one tone, right? She, uh, I, I don't know if it's true anymore, but when I lived in England, you know, she gives a Christmas Day address, national television. And when I was living in England, everybody stopped whatever they were doing and listened to it. And she gives it in exactly that same tone. And uh, she's, uh, she's, she's got, she is, you know, as, as good as ever. She may be even perfect at being what she is, which is a symbol of the nation and its constitutional processes. And so and as, we, these, these as controversial we controversial things, right? She only announces them when they've been settled by an election. But now that's they're announced. It. That's and, it. Uh, and that that's, you know, they're going to, you know, they're doing, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but they're doing dramatic things about the civil service. There are fundamental things afoot in Great Britain, and one of them is Dominic Cummings advised Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is advised to the Queen speak. They intend to change the civil service, and that is a huge innovation. Yeah, and see, you just have to think, right? Um, of course, there needs to be a civil service. That is to say, professional, highly trained people who do the business of the government. But what's the relationship it becomes controversial when the question arises, what's the relationship between that and politics? And in Britain and in America, a great intellectual movement coming from the 19th century grew up to say that we should uh, manage the society according to the principles of modern science. And then we looked at these civil servants as scientific experts, better able to make judgments than ordinary untrained people. And that is, that, that is, in principle, and that is, depending on how far it's carried, a direct assault upon the rule of the people and the consent of the governed. And so their plans, which have to do with two things above all, is uh, they're going to make the heads of the major political departments, they're now called permanent secretaries, it makes them political appointees. Now, they, that they, is they, radical, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, they, uh, you know, it's very old that they have it the way they have it since 1855, I think. But I, my favorite episode is that Winston Churchill had a lot of arguments with a man named Sir Warren Fisher, Fisher, who was the permanent secretary of the Treasury of the Exchequer, which Churchill was chancellor. And this is in the 1920s. And he was also the head of the British Civil Service. He was the senior bureaucrat. And, uh, uh, he, they got into a fight about how to organize the files. And uh, Churchill wrote to him one of his favorite phrases, no longer civil, no longer servants. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> 
So do you, you know, again, with an 80 seat majority, we've been talking this hour, Boris Johnson can do pretty much whatever he wants to do, because a lot of those new members owe it all to Boris Johnson. They're not going to be bolting on him. Do you expect him to move rapidly on this front, which would be a fundamental change in the way that the government has evolved in Great Britain, especially since the war? Well, first, a caveat. The prime minister can lose his job on any day. Uh, but these, so, and Boris is not like to, like, because, you know, the minute his, his party decides they want somebody else to lead the party, they can do it right then. And they, uh, you know, the, the old slogan is the Labor Party talks about changing their leader all the time, but they never do. Uh, the Conservative Party never talks about it, but they do. <laughs> they do. So, so he's got to pay attention, right? But having said that, in a smashing victory, in things upon which he campaigned, right? That's the crucial thing. Churchill believed that Parliament should last five years and that controversial things should only be done in the first two years and only things that you ran on. And then in the second two years, parliaments would do routine things or things that improve the government that are not deeply controversial. And then in the last year, you get ready for an election. And that means major changes would only happen with a fresh vote of the people. And so Boris ran on this stuff, right? And it's fresh. And so I think he's going to do this stuff, and I think he's going to do it right now. And, and so I would expect January and February. They've got to get out of the EU, and that's going to be done by January 31. They have one year to negotiate the trade deal, and so that may take a little bit longer. But what we're definitely going to see happen, and there is just no way we're not going to see happen, is this civil service change. Do you yeah. think, Dr. Under, wrap up 2019, if it is successfully implemented and approved, that we might actually see the repair of the damage done by Jimmy Carter's 1978 Civil Service Reform Act and reintroduce rapid introduction into the permanent government of political appointees, whether it is a Democrat or Republican president, but to put into place the the agencies by which political change can happen and about which I think people are rebelling that they don't. One, one thing, you know, that what so the, here's what I think is the central thing, the central question facing America and other countries similarly governed. All of them have been changed significantly so that now politics is a dirty word and impartial administration is a is a good word. Good, a good expression. But the truth is, in the end, as this is Madison's central argument about the Constitution. Uh, what is government? It's the profoundest of all reflections on human nature. Men were angels. No government needed. Angels govern men. No controls on the government. So this move to administrative, bureaucratized government uh, saps the accountability of the government to the people. And you got to get that back. Dangerous thing. Charles Krautheimer, the late, great Charles Krautheimer, said politics is sovereign. In his book, Things That Matter, he was right. Uh, also, the calendar is sovereign. We are done for the year. We'll be back next year with Dr. Larry Arn. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. I want to talk to you for a moment about a group I've done work with for years, ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. You've seen how your freedom is under attack. Go to townhallreview.com to find out how you can join Alliance Defending Freedom help ensure the opponents of freedom don't dictate your future. That's townhallreview.com. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today.